Father, indeed we have 10,000 reasons and then 10,000 more to sing your praise, to, to bless you for all that you are and your great goodness and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're grateful for this time of worship that reminds us that these things are true. In Jesus' matchless name, amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 17. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so open up on page 1, flick to chapter 17. I think you'll find it on page 12, where we're going to pick up in verse 15. Today marks the beginning of Advent, and we're going to move into a series reflecting upon how God deals with us. And often he deals with us in a way that we aren't expecting. And we begin this study by looking at Abraham and Sarah here in Genesis chapter 17. So let me Read starting in verse 15 through to the end of verse 21. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael... I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him faithful, fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads together again and pray. Father, we're conscious once again that when we come to your word, we need your spirit, that the spirit is the one who leads us into truth. And so I pray that this perfect spirit, the spirit of Christ, would rule and overrule the words of my lips in this time, that what is said might be faithful to your word. And if anything is not in accord with it, it would be utterly forgotten. Come and speak words of grace. Whisper words of grace to our souls. Help us to navigate this text in a way that will help us to navigate life when you're dealing with us in a way that we're not expecting. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Christmas, then, is a time of expectation and anticipation, a time of waiting. And I don't know about you, but I I feel a little bit like this first Sunday of Advent has come a little too soon. Um, we're still in November, and here we are celebrating Advent. I feel like I could have waited a little longer, which I guess is in keeping with the theme of the season we're moving into. Waiting, expectation, anticipation. Now that's all well and good, apart from the fact that waiting can be terrible. Waiting for things can be terrible. This is true even of good things. At this Thanksgiving, for the first time ever, we deep-fried our turkey. 
Now, I'm telling you, nothing makes Thanksgiving manly like deciding to deep fry your turkey. Out we went into the cold, we got some oil, we got it to like 10,000 degrees or whatever it's meant to be. Uh, we dipped the turkey in there, dipped it some more. It uh, didn't set the house on fire, didn't set any of the neighbors' houses on fire. It all went very well. And what was great was that as, as it started to cook, the aroma started to filter out. And you'll know it from your, from your own house this week. And as that aroma started to spread, little start, people started to appear and they would say, is it nearly ready? Is it nearly? Just the smell of that turkey makes you want to eat. You're ready. Waiting for it is terrible. How much more do you remember as a child on Christmas Eve? Waiting for morning to come that you might open those presents. And you sat, you lay there in bed, wide awake, eyes open. Thinking morning would never come. Waiting is a terrible thing. And that's when you're waiting for something good. How much more so when we're waiting on something significant. Waiting on perhaps exam results or or waiting on the results of a job interview or waiting on that medical all clear. Waiting for a loved one to return home from deployment. Waiting can be hard when things are good. It's so much harder when things are bad. And our passage this morning deals with these themes, these themes of expectation, anticipation, waiting. Several things really struck me as I studied it this week, and I want to share them with you, hoping that they'll be helpful to you as well. Three things leaping out, the first of which is, unfortunately for us, unfortunately for a people who find it hard to wait, our God is a God who's rarely early. Our God is a God who is rarely early. Now, this might kind of raise the hackles of many people in D.C. because we're type A and we like to be precisely on time. In fact, our town is full of people, elders, I'm speaking to you, um, who think that if you're not there 15 minutes early, you're late, you know? Um, I'm actually friends with a guy like that. We, we run together, and whenever I show up, he's there, and he's been there for about 50 minutes. I showed up five minutes early one day, and he wasn't there, and I thought he must have been in a car accident or something, you know? Like, um, he's always there. If, if you're not early, you're late, and that's a good thing. That's a thing that resonates with me as a Scot. However, unfortunately, God isn't always that way. In fact, God is rarely early, and nobody knew this better than Abraham. One theologian gives this great summary of Abraham's life. If you're you're not too familiar with Abraham, here's here's a summary of his life. God shows up to him and says, go from the land in which you've been living. And Abraham says, where? And God says, I'll tell you later, just go. Then God shows up again and he says, I will give you a land. And Abraham says, when? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just wonder. Then God shows up a third time and says, I'll give you a son. And Abraham says, how? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just wait. Time and time again, Abraham finds himself waiting on the Lord, following in faith when he doesn't know how things are going to work out. And the passage that we read this morning, Genesis 17, deals with this promise of a son. A promise of a son. Now, it's hard to overstate the importance of this promise to Abraham and Sarah. For cultural reasons, for personal reasons, for spiritual reasons. Culturally, we know and understand that that in this day, your very identity and the very well-being of your own soul was very much dependent upon your larger family. 
Now, we understand that today. The desire to have a family is still a very powerful thing today. But culturally, we have shifted a little more to define ourselves primarily by what we do rather than the family that we're from. So in this area, the first question you ask someone isn't, tell me about your family. It's, oh, what do you do? Uh, so we understand it, but we also understand that in this day and age, it was, it was, the desire for family was, was heightened. And very, identity was very much tied to your ability to have a family. So much so that we read really uh, just heartbreaking stories of women who were unable to have children and how they would at times wander out into the wilderness exposing themselves either to wildlife or simply to the elements committing a form of suicide because they were so ashamed of their inability to provide a child, offspring, an heir to the family. Culturally, to Abraham, this promise of a child was significant. But it was also very significant for him personally. And, and a good way for us to understand this is by thinking of, of Abraham's names. So remember the first name that Abraham had? It was just Abram, without the ham, okay? A-B-R-A-M. That was his first name. And do you know what, do you, do you know what Abram means? It means exalted father. So imagine he comes in this morning and I say, Hi, I'm James. It's nice to meet you. And he says, Oh, I'm exalted father. And what, what am I going to ask? <laughs> Great. You know, how many children do you have? Well, none. None. He'd lived his whole life with a name that gave great stigma to the fact that he didn't have children. Then God shows up. This was a good day for Abraham. God shows up and he says, Abraham, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to change your name uh, to, to Abraham. Now, at first, Abraham's thinking, great, finally, I'm going to get rid of this name that's brought me so much stigma. And then God gives him the second half of the sentence, which is, your name will now be Abraham, and Abraham sighs. Why? Because while Abraham means exalted father, Abraham means father of the nations. So he's gone from just not having any of his own kids, now to not having any kids that would meant, you know, his name signifies, would extend to, to many nations. And so when people meet Abraham, they wonder at his name and they ponder at his name. And as he has to explain that he has no children, they turn and walk and he hears snickering in the tents because it's so inappropriate to his life story. Culturally important promise to have a child. Personally an important promise that we'd have a child. And spiritually, of course, an important promise that we'd have a child. Why? Because God had promised that the child Abraham would have wouldn't just be any ordinary child, but would be the child through whom the Savior would come. In other words, it was from Abraham's descendants that all the nations will be blessed. God's very plan of salvation is dependent upon Abraham having a child. Now, how is that for pressure? You know, it's not just the sort of you know, the in-laws who are saying, you know, it's about time. You know, you should be having a child by now. He has, he, he's like, the entire redemption of the world is depending on my heir. And I haven't delivered. And so this passage, dealing with this promise of a child, is a, a very significant one to Abraham. First look at verse 16, where God reiterates the promise that he will have a child. I will bless Sarah, he says, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. How does Abraham respond? Does he fall on his face and wonder and say, Lord, your word is so good. Thank you for your faithfulness. No, look at verse 17. Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Isn't that a powerful picture? He laughs so hard he falls over. You know? 
side splitting kind of chuckle. And he says to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm with Abraham on this one. Okay? Often, you know, when you read the scriptures and the Lord shows up and he kind of gives this word of promise and the people don't believe and you think, surely if the Lord showed up and gave us a word of promise, we'd believe. Well, no, we wouldn't. And we especially wouldn't in this circumstance. Think of what Abraham's saying. He's saying, I'm 100 years old. My wife is 90. That ship has sailed. Okay? (laughs) You know, if the Lord showed up today and said, James, I will make you an NBA all-star. Right? I would laugh. I would laugh. Why? I don't think there ever was that ship. <laughs> but, you know, I, you know how many 5'10 Scottish redheads there are in the NBA? Yeah. <laughs> but you'd laugh. You'd think, that's ridiculous. Abraham's laughter isn't like some cynical snort of derision. It's based on objective fact. 90-year-old women don't have children, Abraham says. And so he laughs. He laughs. There's a great gap between his condition and his calling, and so he doubts. A great divide between his condition, where he finds himself in life, the actual facts of his circumstances, and his calling, what God has told him will happen. But the gulf's so wide that he he can't believe, and so he laughs. Now, Abraham's struggle here is really all of our struggle. Why? Because we worship a God who's rarely early. We worship a God who's rarely early. I know I've experienced this in some small ways and then also in some significant ways. In small ways, I remember uh, as I was finishing up seminary, you know, I was, I'm pretty sure, the last student in my graduating class to find a church. And this was hard for me because I had a lot of angst about my call into ministry. Uh, Many of you know that it just had a, a really hard time with with submitting to the Lord's call to be a pastor. And I think this is very reasonable because you know pastors. Do you know any pastors? Yeah? You know they're not like you, right? They're sort of like those people over there. They wake up at 5 a.m. and read Calvin, okay? (laughs) I wake up at 5 a.m. and look at Calvin. It's like, caffeine, right? Um, So just a lot of angst about calling to ministry, not yet understanding that what qualifies you for ministry is extreme brokenness and experience of grace okay uh that's for another story but um so i just it was waiting on the lord to see to see what he would have us do having finally kind of submitted to his call to go into ministry we were then looking for a church and we kept on having these interviews and church interviews are really weird okay they're really awkward because you're kind of like i'm humble and i'm awesome <laughs> you know <laughs> so you should hire me okay um and, uh, you know, I kept on having these interviews and none of them felt quite right. And then my mother-in-law would call and, you know, I've got her daughter and these children and she'd be like, so have you got a job yet? And I'd be like, no. And it's just, it was a hard thing. It was a hard thing. The God wasn't early. I've shared before as well, our families had to wait in some more significant ways. The story of my aunt who went hitchhiking and traveling in India. Woke up one morning walked to a market stall, bought three apples, continued on her way, and disappeared. Our family marshaled an incredible response. My grandfather flew out to India. They conducted the largest search that's ever been conducted in that region of Kashmir, but they didn't find her. And so my granddad had to get back on that plane. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine 
Your daughter going missing, flying out to find her, and having to get back on that plane. Hadn't found her yet. God's rarely early. There's a gap between, you know, our condition, where we find ourselves, and our calling, what we think our lives were meant to look like. That's the first thing. God is rarely early. Second thing, hopefully more encouraging thing, is that while God is rarely early, he's never late. God's rarely early, but he's never late. Uh, Look with me uh, again in this section, uh, verse 19. Here God shows up and reiterates his promise to give him a child, but this time he also gives him some specifics. God said, no, Sarah your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. This is great. Um, What does Isaac mean? Isaac means laughter. God shows up and says, I'll give you a son. Abraham says, I don't think so. And God says, I'll have the last laugh. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to have a son, and you're going to call him Isaac. And every time you call his name, you're going to remember this. Okay? You're going to remember this. She'll call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. In other words, this won't be any ordinary son, but that son of promise through whom the Savior will come. You will still have that child. Let's press fast forward and go ahead a couple of scenes to Genesis chapter 21. Here, God makes good on this promise. Verse 1, chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Isaac. God made good on his promise. He's rarely early, but he's never late. He's the God who knows the end from the beginning. It means when God starts something, he already knows how it's going to end. And because he knows the end from the beginning, he knows the best way to get us there. We sometimes illustrate this by thinking about, you know, are you going to use the microwave or are you going to use the crockpot? Well, it depends, okay? If you're making noodles, sure, stick them in the microwave. If you're making stew, maybe you want to use the crockpot. How will it go for you if you chop up some raw raw meat, a couple of onions, a couple of carrots, a bit of water, throw it in the microwave for two minutes? Not well. Not well. Why? Because the end you have in mind has to dictate the process you go through to get to that end. And God, the God who knows the end from the beginning, knows how to get us there. And so while he's rarely early, he is, is never late. And I've experienced this too. I've experienced this side of it too. Um, say, for example, with the church. Uh, the way we got connected to McLean, I, I love this story. You've probably heard it before, forgive me. But... Um, Christmas of our senior year, went back to Scotland in my home church one morning uh, after the service, get talking to a guy that I was sitting beside. Turns out I was in Edinburgh for a week, he was in Edinburgh for a week, and we just happened to get talking there uh, after that church service. Turns out that he's a professor at Covenant Seminary, and part of his job here in the States is to help graduating seniors find churches. So I shook his hand, and I sent him a resume, and sort of left not really thinking much more of it. Fast forward to the March of that year, I'm studying for finals and I get a call from John Hutchinson who tells me that he has got my name from this guy that I met in Scotland. And so we have this kind of chance meeting in Scotland that ends up connecting us back over here to 
Mr. McLean. The session didn't meet until the May of that senior year, about two weeks before I was graduating, and so it was right at the end then that I found out we were coming to McLean, which to us was hilarious. I don't know if I've told you this before, but we were really sure we weren't going to get this job. Partly because uh, McLean has, and we still have in some ways, um, an initial formality that sort of belies the real personal warmth there is in this flock. You know, you walk into this place, you see the organ, you see the carpet, you see the lights, and you think, I'm not going to get a job here, right? Um, But then there's a great love, warmth, personal affection in this place as well. And so, uh, God rarely early, but never late. Got this job, just in time. What did I do? Called my (laughs) mother-in-law. Right? He knows what he's doing. And I'm sure you've had experiences like this as well. You've had experiences where things didn't work out as planned, but as you look back on it, you wouldn't change a thing. You realize with 2020 that God knew what he was doing. Though he's rarely early, he's never late. Because of that, the third thing, we need to get on board with his timetable for our lives. God's rarely early, but he's never late, and so we need to get on board with his timetable for our lives. See, very often we have a plan. We have a timetable for how life should work out. And when it doesn't work out in that way, we get frustrated. And this passage is teaching us that we need to get on board with God's timetable for our lives. How do we do that? Three very quick things. First of all, we need to remember that God's plan for our lives very often isn't our plan for our lives. God's plan for our lives is very often not our plan for our lives. See, we have this tendency to, to, to just have, have the future mapped out and how we want to see it play out. And the problem with this tendency is it's formed by cultural ideas, not by biblical ideas. Really bought into this lie, and we actually tell our students this lie, that work hard at school, and then you'll get into a good college. Work hard there, and then you'll get a good job. Get a good job, you'll get the house with the picket fence, and somewhere along the way you'll get the wife and kids too. It's a beautiful picture. Only problem is, it's not in here. Do you know what this says? It says, follow me and you will suffer. Follow me and you'll be persecuted as I was persecuted. Follow me and life won't work out the way you planned. It will work out though the way that I have planned. And far too often what we do is, because we have this plan for our own lives that we have very tight grip on, we end up actually making a mess of our lives. Uh, We see this in Abraham, right? Do you remember? What what did Abraham do? God had promised him a child, and the child hadn't arrived, so what did he do? He took matters into his own hands. Remember? He thought, well, there's no way now that Sarah and I can have a child. I know the Lord said that happened, but there's just no way it can. So Sarah comes to him and says, I've got a plan. Why don't don't you get together with our servant girl, Hagar, the Egyptian servant girl that lives in our house, uh, get pregnant with her, and then that child can be our heir. And so off Abraham goes to fulfill God's plan for his life by sinning in the moment. Devastates his relationship with his wife. Devastates Sarah's relationship with Hagar. It just creates this incredible mess in his own family system because he tried to make things turn out the way he wanted to make them turn out. And very often we're the same, right? We have this idea of how life should be, and so we do whatever it takes to get those things, even if it's destructive. So we accrue a lot of debt, and we um, get angry with our boss, 
And we get despondent when things don't work out the way they should. And all the while, just making more of a mess than we were in to begin with. In order to be on board with God's timetable for our lives, we need to remember that that God's plan for our lives is not our plan for our lives. Second thing we need to do, and we see this in Abraham too, is um, be active. I don't want to say, in saying, remember your plan's not God's plan, I don't mean to say, therefore be passive and just sit around until, you know, boom, God's plan for your life appears. Um, this is taught to us very powerfully in this text, and I want to make this point sensitively, but not so sensitively that we miss the point. God promised Abraham and Sarah a child, and it was not the virgin birth. Okay? They had to do something about this. Okay? And isn't this great? He's 100, and she's 90, and they're getting after it. Okay? <laughs> Never let anyone tell you being a man of God is boring. Okay? <laughs> they, pers- they, they, they do... They're active. Let's just say that. Let me, um, <laughs> let me use another illustration that I can talk more freely about. Um, it's, uh, it's like that time, you know, uh, you, you pray before every meal. Okay? You pray before every meal and you say, thank you, Lord, for this food. Do you believe that God provides your food for you? Of course you do. Of course you do. How does he provide it for you? You don't just close your eyes and say, Lord, thank you for this breakfast. Open your eyes. Boom. Cheerios. Okay? No. The Lord's provided a job and provided gifts and abilities to work hard and provided resources from that work, and provided a place called Giant, and uh, provided in Giant a cereal aisle, and uh, he provided you the means and the transportation and all that you need to go to Giant, get your cereal, come home. And so what do you do on the morning? You get the cereal, you pour it in your bowl, and then with a genuine heart you say, Lord, thank you for the cereal. Do you take credit for it? No. Because you recognize that it's God's gift to you. But... We call this the doctrine of, of, of secondary causes. God has provided this for you, provided you this meal, by providing for you every step of the way, enabling you to be active so that you have this blessing in this moment. So the message of this text doesn't sit around and do nothing. Abraham Sarah sit around and do nothing? No baby, right? And for us as well, it's not about being passive. It's about recognizing that God's plan might not be our plan. And working all the while without those kind of white knuckles. Thirdly, very briefly, in order to be on board with God's plan for your life, recognize his plan isn't your plan. Be active. And rest, trust in the one who loves you more than life. Abraham's is not the biggest, longest wait in biblical history. That belongs to Jesus. Promised when? Genesis 3.15. In the Garden of Eden, God says, a Savior will come. A child shall be born. Seed of the woman who will be the Savior of the world. Years pass, decades pass, centuries pass, millennia pass. Time goes on and on and on and on and on until Galatians 4.4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son. When the fullness of time, at the right time, at the time that he knew was advantageous to his redemptive plan, God sent his son. And in so doing, he has proved to us that he's not just powerful, he's not just in control of our future, he is also wise, he is also loving, he also cares about the future. 
And so as we think about his plan for our lives, we're not trusting some vague, omnipotent being. We're trusting the one who has demonstrated to us his love and his care and his concern for us. And so as we navigate life, we don't navigate life in order to get those things. Whatever those things are, whether that's the promotion, whether that's the pay raise, whether that's the relationship. We don't navigate life just to get those things. We navigate life to get more of him. Now sometimes he gives us these things. And through these things, you know why he gives us these things? Because they give us more of him. So often we pray for a thing when what we're looking for is, is his presence in our lives. His blessing of grace in our lives. And so we're not trusting in some force. We're not trusting in fate. We're not trusting in history. We're trusting a person. Acknowledging that in the cross he has proved how much he loves us so that we can say if we knew everything he knew, we would be glad that our lives are working out exactly the way they are. Now, I need to give a quick, brief addition on that point, which is, that's hard to hear. If you've longed for that marriage and it hasn't come, if you've longed for that child and it hasn't come, how can it be that this is God's plan for your life? All I can tell you is, again, going back to our own family's experience. You remember how the story with my aunt ends? My granddad got back on that plane without his daughter, leaving her somewhere in India. He would get on and off that plane another 17 times. Remember when she was found? She wasn't. She wasn't. The largest loose end in our family history is what has happened to my my mom's sister. What happened there? We don't know. And so what do we say? God doesn't know what he's doing? No, we trust the unknowns of that situation to the God that we know. Believing in faith. These proved how much he loves us. We can trust our futures to his hand. Sermon in a sentence. God is rarely early, but he's never late. So let's get on board with his timetable for our lives. Let's pray. Father, there are many things in our lives, many things this morning that aren't working out as we would have planned it. This is not the play we would have designed, not how we would have drawn it up. And yet, Lord, we trust you more than we trust ourselves because you have shown us how much you love us in Jesus Christ. And in him we have forgiveness of sins, and in forgiveness of sins we have all things for eternity and here for time we can rest and trust in you, even when we don't understand Father, we thank you for the story of Abraham and how you showed that while you're rarely early, you're never late, and that he could trust you with his life. And Lord, we ask that you would enable each of us to do the same. By the grace of the gospel, we pray. Amen.